Good morning. It's, as I so frequently say, it really is a joy to be together, uh, made all the sweeter from just the short time apart after our time yesterday, um, as we get to join together this morning to uh, participate in really what it is that makes our fellowship so sweet, whether it's now or whether it's over a weekend or whether it's during our Bible studies midweek or just the fellowship that takes place. And it's, it's because it's centered around what we've sung this morning regarding the cross of Christ, the work he's done in our lives, the great hope that we have. And it's that, that shared hope, that shared joy, that shared experience that unites us together and makes just our time together in fellowship and our time together as we study the word this morning so precious. So, some of you know this about me, but growing up, I loved Westerns. In fact, from a young age, probably Judah's age or even younger, I was not fully dressed until I had my cowboy boots on, my hat on my head, and my gun on my hip. Parents didn't let me have a real one. I never really completely outgrew my enjoyment of Westerns. In fact, when I was in seminary, one of my professors, he had actually written a couple of Western novels. Um, I loved, uh, when I was living in Southern California, I, I enjoyed the desert. I, I liked just seeing it and seeing the brown. My wife grew up in Southern California. He has, she has very different feelings about the desert. But for me, when I looked at it and I would go through it, it was filled with stories and ideas. And I just always enjoyed that. If you've watched many Westerns, you know probably the most iconic figure of all Westerns is John Wayne. Throughout his scenes or his movies and his films, he made a number of iconic statements. And one of his most iconic statements in a, this one particularly was in a Western film, is when he said that being, courage is being scared to death, but saddling up anyways. Another time, John Wayne said, all battles are fought by scared men who'd rather be someplace else. Now, as much as I like John Wayne, he wasn't a theologian. John Wayne offered what is perhaps one of the better solutions the world has for dealing with fear, for gritting your teeth, bearing with it, pushing through, doing what you must do even when terrified. However, I want to present to you this morning a better way, a better way for dealing with fear, specifically for dealing with fear that arises from persecution and from suffering, a better way than just gritting your teeth and pushing through it. In Matthew 10, Jesus is sending out his apostles, and he's speaking to them as well as other faithful disciples. And as we looked at last week, as we've looked at for the past few weeks, he lets them know, he informs them that they will endure suffering. It will come. It will proceed from bad to worse. It will involve not only strangers and authorities, but the betrayal by friends, by family, as it progresses from beatings and ill treatment ultimately to death. And so having affirmed to his disciples and the 12 apostles that they will face persecution, that they will face suffering, that it will come from unexpected sources, from those that you thought were closest to you. He now turns his attention to the natural human response that arises with such news. 
Well, what is that human response? It's fear. It's apprehension. It's anxiety about what is to come. The response any of us would have, no matter how brave we may think we are, is some fear and trepidation regarding what is to come. We may begin dreading or thinking too long about the potential pain and suffering that might come. We may even be willing to endure it, but it doesn't mean we wouldn't shudder at it. So the question before us this morning, and the question that Jesus answers, is how do we handle this kind of fear? How do we deal with the known and the unknown? What are we to do when we feel petrified or when dread creeps in regarding persecution or suffering of any kind? real or potential. Three times in our passage this morning, Jesus will exhort his disciples to not fear. Do not be afraid. And with each exhortation, Jesus provides a reason and a means for dealing with that fear. So if you haven't opened your Bibles there already, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 10 as we look at Jesus' solution to this type of fear, specifically fear of persecution and suffering. Looking down, and I'm going to back up to verse 24. We read, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Therefore, do not fear them. For there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light, and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Pray with me. Father, we acknowledge this morning our weakness and the fact that we are fearful people. That is our natural tendency. And so, Father, we're thankful for this text this morning, which will help us to address this, which will help to instruct us, particularly where it comes to fear or anxiety or Anxiousness we may feel with the thought of persecution of any kind, of suffering of any kind. Help us to be faithful disciples. Help us to grow in our love for you, our understanding of you through our time in your word this morning. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, before we get into the details of the text and each of the reasons Jesus provides for not fearing, notice from what we just read what it is, is that Jesus does not say. What does he not say? Well, he doesn't say that they don't need to fear because they're not actually going to suffer or they might escape it. He doesn't fear, say don't fear because the hardships won't come if you do this or that. He doesn't say don't fear because you're going to have instead a life of ease, of health, wealth, and prosperity. Instead, he's going to provide us with a completely different set of reasons and expectations for not fearing. And the first reason to not fear is found in verses 26 through 27. 
And it begins by saying, do not fear them. So let's make sure we answer, ask and answer the question, who is the them? Well, we need to look back into the context. And we go back, we don't have to go very far. We just turn to the context of those that he told them to be wary of, beginning in verses 16 and 17. To beware of the wolves who would hand them over to the courts, scourge them in the synagogues. The them continues, as we saw last week, to eventually include friends and family members, those closest to you. Ultimately, culminating with the them of verse 22, that is all who hate faithful disciples of Jesus Christ on account of Jesus' name. And so this is the fear that Jesus is specifically addressing here. It is the fear of persecution and suffering for the sake of the gospel, whether real or potential. Now, some of these same principles can be applied to any area of fear in our lives, but we need to understand the context and remember what specifically he is addressing. But why is it that Jesus says, do not fear? I appreciate he doesn't say, don't fear, and then leaves them and sends them on their way. He gives them reasons. He gives them motivations. But what is that reason? He says, for, introducing that reason or that explanation, he says, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. That clears it all up, doesn't it? I need to confess that the first, the second, the third, maybe even the fourth time I read that, I still was not certain how that was to help me not fear. What does this mean? How does that help me to not fear? How does that provide a reason for not fearing? I know it's supposed to. Jesus said it. How does it help me, though, with my fear and what persons will do to me? So I had to start paying closer attention to the specific words. And we see what's there. It's, they concern revealing what is concealed and making known what is hidden. So then we need to ask, does Scripture describe a time when this type of revelation of all things will take place? And the answer is yes. We read in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, Therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, then each man's praise will come to him from God. The writer of Hebrews likewise notes, in Hebrews 4, verses 12 through 13, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You're familiar with that verse, but verse 13 then goes on to say, and there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. That is the one to whom we give an account and will give an account. What about the Old Testament? Well, Solomon closes out Ecclesiastes by saying in Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14, the conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments. Because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. And in Revelation 20, verses 11 and 12, we read, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whom from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. 
At the end of this Christ's reign on earth before the new heavens and new earth, we see a reference to a judgment that takes place where every deed of man is revealed and judged. It's foretold in the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, in Revelation. So scripture elsewhere speaks of a time of revealing and unveiling what is hidden. But is this the same revealing Jesus is talking about? We now know scripture talks about revealing and making the hidden known. But is this what Jesus was talking about? Does the context support this? In Matthew 10, do we have other references to the future rule and reign of Christ? To the judgment of God, which would support that this is the same revealing that Jesus is talking about in this context? Well, the answer is yes. Verse 23, it speaks of the coming of the Son of Man. We looked at that last week. This is a reference back to Daniel 9. And specifically in that context, what is taking place? The throne has been set up. The court has been arranged. And God is judging. And the coming of the Son of Man is in part to end the suffering of the saints as he sets up his kingdom. It's at that time the judge, the ancient of days, God himself is seated in judgment and all that is hidden is revealed. What this means is that the four, the reason to not fear suffering and persecution by persons real or potential is because when placed next to eternity, next to the promise of what is to come, next to the king and the judge who reigns in eternity, any suffering, anything that may come will seem small, insignificant. The hope of heaven and eternity minimizes pain and fear. You know, we've all had to do hard things in our lives at different times. I remember my wife giving birth without the aid of an epidural or anything to numb the pain. And the pain she experienced was excruciating. And yet after birth, she didn't hesitate to say she was ready to do it again. Because the joy of what was set before her, literally in her arms minimizes, made her forget the pain. Whether it be the length of potential or real suffering or the extent of that suffering, they are dwarfed when placed next to eternity and the promises that God has for his children. As Paul notes to the disciple of Jesus Christ in Romans 8.18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's like visiting the Louvre in France, filled with beautiful masterpieces. And while walking around marveling at these beautiful works of art, you find a piece of hotel art in there. You wonder how it even got there. It's not worthy to be in the same room, in the same setting, or even the same gallery as these masterpieces. It's not worthy to even be compared to them. And so it is with our current sufferings. They are so fleeting, so insignificant, compared to eternity. But how do I develop this sense of eternity? How do I develop this understanding that makes everything else pale in comparison? How do I practically place my current circumstances next to eternity so that they look small? How do we do this? Well, it begins by studying eternity. By studying eschatology. Study the promises of God. We talked about this a little bit last week. 
These promises and this hope help to wake you up in the morning. It helps to invigorate you, to motivate you for study and communion with God. Don't fall into the trap of thinking it's impossible to know anything or that it's just static serenity in the future. Heaven will be busy. It will be vibrant. It will be active. We will experience activity without exhaustion and pain. We'll experience productivity without the curse of sin. And we will live for eternity in the service of the king who we call Father. So we need to begin by studying these things. And then when fears or concerns arise, we need to remind ourselves of what we've studied, what God has promised, what he has said in his word. And the Holy Spirit will draw upon the well of our study. But again, the admonition is if you fail to study, if there's nothing for the Spirit to draw upon or use in your lives, then it's no wonder that you fear, that you struggle to place it next to eternity, to make the current suffering seem small next to eternity. Well, verse 27 assumes that the disciples' view of eternity has pushed away the clouds of fear. And the result is, the outworking of that is that you then begin to proclaim and reveal the kingdom of God. It says, what I tell you in darkness, speak in the light. What you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the, the housetops. That in darkness and whispered in your ear is really just a way of saying what I've told you in private, make known publicly. Our confidence that, and notice this, this is kind of neat, the connected themes here. Our confidence that God will reveal all in eternity, that word picture that draws our minds to the hope of eternity, that revelation should encourage our hearts so that we boldly reveal the gospel and shine the light of the gospel in a dark world. In the first century, important public announcements were given from flat rooftops so you could get above everybody and shout down to them and let everyone hear so as one commentator notes, Jesus is saying this mission is to be one of fearless proclamation, public and powerful in its intensity. Now notice here in verse 27 what the result and the purpose of eliminating fear of suffering is. It's not simply so that we don't fear. In fact, it's not about us at all. The reason that we are to stop fearing, the reason we are to tackle fear so aggressively, that we are to put it out, there's a reason Jesus repeats this admonition three times for emphasis. The reason is so that God would get the glory, so that his power would be revealed, so that his kingdom would be revealed, so that us, his disciples, as the instruments he's chosen to reveal his kingdom to the world, would not shirk away from that responsibility. In other words, everything that we have, every admonition to not fear is not about us. Yes, we get to reap the benefits, but it's not about us. It's about us glorifying God. This is why we want to rid ourselves of this fear of man and anything man can do. Well, verse 28 continues this theme and introduces Jesus' second exhortation to not fear and the reason and the method for accomplishing this. At the start of verse 28, we again see that identification of the persons we are not to fear, those who kill the body. This clearly refers back to what we've already been talking about the past several weeks about this persecution, these persons who are seeking to harm believers, disciples, 
apostles. I read this week of notices that were supposedly sent around Afghanistan to families with children who had converted to Christianity in, over the recent years. They were told to turn their children over to the authorities for interrogation. And the final statement in that demand says that these parents have no right to complain about the treatment of family members or their property. It's a sobering reminder to continue praying for believers in Afghanistan, other parts of the world who face this type of severe persecution daily and weekly. But additionally, it illustrates the reality of what Jesus said. Faithful disciples will be handed over even by their own family members. However, Jesus is saying, don't fear them. Why? Because all they can do is kill the body. That's the worst. Now, it still sounds pretty awful, doesn't it? Let's be honest. It, it sounds, still sounds awful. And yes, humanly speaking, it is. We should be saddened at the loss of life on this earth since God creates each and every human being. We shouldn't take death lightly. However, just as we talked about already, in light of eternity, they've not ended life. They've simply ended life on this earth in the body. They can do nothing to the soul which constitutes a person and who they really are. Death, in fact, is a certainty in this life. We all must die, as the writer of Hebrews reminds us in Hebrews 9, 27, where it says, in so much, or inasmuch as it is appointed for man to die, and after this comes the judgment. Here in verse 28, that reference to hell shows that this destroy that is talked about of fear, fear not man who can destroy the body, but the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell, that reference to hell shows that this destroy is not a reference to annihilationism. It doesn't annihilate the soul and body in hell, but rather it continues in hell. It is ongoing. As one commentator notes, Jesus is speaking of the destruction of everything that makes for a rich and meaningful life, not the cessation of life's existence in hell. In fact, this destruction in hell is never-ending and ongoing. It is continual destruction, a never-ending destruction. So how do we overcome this fear of death, according to verse 28? Notice that the solution to ending the fear of those who would seek to kill the body is to not try and stop fearing altogether. But rather, it's to redirect that fear. We must change the object of fear. There is only one thing that we should fear. Unfortunately, FDR did not have it right when he said that the only thing to fear is fear itself. As Jesus notes, we should fear God, the one who has the power to destroy both soul and body. There is a right type of fear in this world. That's why we find in Job, one of the earliest books of the Bible, the introduction and the instruction to the fear of the Lord. In Job 28, 28, we read, And to man he has said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. By the way, you see Job referring back to some previously uttered statement. For all we know, this was handed down from Adam through Noah and his sons as one of the earliest commandments. Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, repeats this instruction at the beginning of Proverbs in Proverbs 1.7 where he says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. 
And again in Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The psalmist likewise writes in Psalm 111 verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praises endure forever. When the disciples, back in Matthew 8, as we looked at, as they were crossing the sea at night, and Jesus, exhausted from all of his activity, fell asleep in the boat, and the storm began to build and to rage around them. And out of their fear and and their concern that their life was at an end, they wake Jesus up. He wonders why they woke him up. He looks around, he says, peace, be still, and there's perfect calmness. So all their fear goes away, right? No, it's amplified. It goes from fear to outright terror before the Lord because they realized they were standing in the presence of him who controls the wind and the waves. In fact, their fear of the storm became nothing in light of the fear of the one who controls the storm. In the same way, Our fear of the suffering should be nothing in comparison to the one who controls all. The greatness of the Savior made that earlier danger pale in comparison. And if our fear is rightly oriented on God, then there is nothing else that we should fear. But how do we do that? How do you fear the Lord? How do you put that into practice? We've discussed this previously, whether it goes back a couple years to our study of Ecclesiastes or as recently as a review of it in Matthew 8, where we looked at the disciples' trip across the Sea of Galilee in the storm. See, Scripture is not silent, nor is it unclear about how or what the fear of God looks like when put into practice. And these things, and I'll review them again briefly this morning, these actions But these are the actions that accompany and demonstrate fear of the Lord. And the wonderful thing is, the more you put them into practice, the more they become become secondhand, they become habits. And the more they begin to affect your thinking, your emotions, and your inclinations. There's times in life where our desires and our emotions lead to good actions. But probably more often than not, doing the right thing then helps to cultivate the emotions that follow. If I were to wait until I felt like loving my wife every time before I demonstrated loving my wife, it would be a long wait. Oftentimes, it doesn't matter how I feel. It doesn't matter what I, in my (laughs) sinfulness, want to do. I need to choose to do the right thing. What's wonderful is the way the Lord uses obedience to then cultivate emotions and desires that correspond. And so as we look at these actions, first one must trust God completely. Psalm 115.11 describes this, where the one who fears the Lord trusts him. And trusting in the Lord, the more you do this, the more you rely upon him, the more you pray to him, As James says, casting all of your anxiety on him because he cares for you, the more it just happens. The more you just are at peace when difficult times come. It doesn't mean you never are anxious, you never have fear of the circumstances. 
But the more you trust in the Lord, the easier it becomes to trust in the Lord. Second, the psalmist reminds us in Psalm 130, verse 4, that the only one who can experience God's, this fear of the Lord, that can rightly fear the Lord, is the one who has experienced God's forgiveness and reality, meaning they have repented of their sins. So the only persons that can rightly fear the Lord are those who belong to the Lord. Third, one must sincerely delight in God's word and study it. Psalm 112, verse 1 says that the fear of the Lord involves the study and the knowledge of the Lord. But then it goes beyond just delighting in it and studying it to keeping and obeying it. And we could go on and on with the number of verses that describe this, whether it be Psalm 119, 63, Ecclesiastes 12, 13 that we already read this morning, Genesis 22, 12, Deuteronomy 6, 2, 24, and the list goes on and on and on. In fact, Deuteronomy 14.23 says that we obey in order to learn the fear of God. Fifth, one must sincerely and consistently hate evil. You must turn from evil. Your ability to fear God will become clouded. It will become difficult. Those inward feelings, that love of God becomes muted when you don't turn from evil. Proverbs 8.13 highlights that. In Psalm 147.11, we learn that one must steadfastly hope and wait in God's loyal love. Trust in his love specifically. Combined with that is Deuteronomy 10.12, which says that you must love God in order to fear him. How do you love God? Well, he's made that very clear. Whether it be in the Gospel of John or in 1 John. If you love me, you will Keep my commandments. But then I love what he follows that up with. My commandments are not burdensome. Eighth, one must be truthful and honest. That's intimately tied to the fear of God and putting the fear of God in practice. If you fear the Lord, if you love the Lord, you will flee falsehood. Lastly, in order to fear the Lord, you have to know the Lord. So study his attributes. Learn about him. Meditate upon who he is. Read the Psalms extensively and start writing down and listing what is it that I learn about the Lord. As Bill Barrick notes, these elements, specifically the second one that talks about needing to experience repentance, Identify true believers as the only individuals who are able to rightly fear God. But you see, eventually every person on this earth is going to have a fear of God. One way or the other. Either right fear or wrong fear. Great fear fell on those outside the church when they heard what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. But that was a fear of punishment. It was of dread. The disciples feared greatly when Jesus calmed the storm, but it wasn't a fear of punishment. It was a recognition of their littleness in the presence of God. The question, the question we need to make sure of at the beginning, or to see if we can even fear God to begin with, is do I fear him rightly as a disciple so that I don't fear him in judgment? The right fear of God overshadows fear of suffering and persecution. 
Well, you hear this. You read about this fear of God. You begin to understand his character, his attributes, him as judge, as ruler, as sovereign. And he begins to feel other, outside. Surely he's unapproachable. Well, Jesus doesn't want to leave us with that thought. So he provides verses 29 through 31, which is a beautiful balance to the faithful disciple in light of the exhortation to fear God. And this exhortation to stop fearing man is predicated upon God's care and his love for his children. Here we see the balance to the fear of God as judge, and that's understanding the love of the Father. Jesus balances the fear we are to have in light of his role as judge and as ruler with the reality that for the true disciple of Jesus Christ, this awesome, this fearful judge is still our Father who intimately cares for us. When we are scared, when we are hurting, when we're attacked, yeah, we want it to stop. But often we just at least want to know that someone cares and that our suffering has not gone unnoticed. That someone sees, someone notices. That's what Jesus says here. God has numbered the very hairs of your head. He pays attention to the most mundane of things in our life. Or as we read this morning from Psalm 56, he captures our tears in a bottle. He's aware of every single tear that drops in suffering and in pain. Using the argument from the lesser to the greater, Jesus notes that God cares for the sparrow. The cheapest of meals, it's like the hors d'oeuvre or the appetizer, could be purchased for just a, a penny or it was one sixteenth of a day's wage to purchase a couple sparrows. They're insignificant. They're throwaway birds. And yet it's still part of his creation. As such, it does not fall, it does not perish without his notice. Sparrows may rate low on God's list of priorities, but he still cares for them. As one commentator noted, they are part of God's creation and they have real value to him. God is not so busy running the universe that he has no time for little birds. And why is this important? Because Jesus then says that his disciples, what should be obvious, they are more valuable than many sparrows with the clear implication that because of this value, God certainly notices and cares for them, for us. Job marveled at this reality in Job 7 where he says in verses 17 and 18, what is man that you magnify him, that you are concerned about him, that you examine him every morning and try him every moment. Turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 8. David, the king, the psalmist, the theologian, likewise asks a similar question. Job 8, we read, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, 
the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you have ordained. What is man that you take thought of him? The son of man that you care for him. That you've made him a little lower than God. You crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Have you seen God's care in your life? It's there. I guarantee you it is there. If you struggle to be able to clearly identify God's care in your life, his concern for you, then what you need to begin doing is paying attention. There's a reason that we're told to give thanks always because it orients our mind to an awareness of God's working in our lives from the small and the mundane to the great and the significant. By practicing over and over again, giving thanks to God for everything, we cultivate a habit that has an awareness, a sensitivity to what God is doing. Have you ever learned a new word or a new concept and suddenly you start to see it everywhere? It's the same idea. You start to give thanks to God and you start to see his care and his provision everywhere. Recognizing God's love for us and his care for us, his plan for us in eternity overshadows our fears so that we can faithfully endure suffering and continue boldly proclaiming the gospel. In the days of Nero, which wasn't long after Christ's death, burial, his ascension, in the life of the early church, Nero, who was emperor of Rome, had a band of elite soldiers were known as the emperor's wrestlers. These men were the best athletes in the Roman amphitheater and likewise the bravest soldiers in all the Roman army. They were the Navy SEALs. They wrestled for the emperor against all who challenged them. And before each contest, they would stand before the emperor's throne and cry out, We the wrestlers, wrestling for thee, O emperor, to win for thee the victory and from thee the victor's crown. One year, midwinter, there was a rebellion waged in Gaul, modern-day France. And the emperor sent for his wrestlers, told them to go to Gaul in the war. This brave group of wrestlers left Rome under the command of Vespasian. And while in Gaul, rumors came back to Rome that while there, many of the emperor's wrestlers had become Christians. When news of this reached Nero, he sent a message to Vespasian and made the decree, if there be any among your soldiers who cling to the faith of the Christians, they must die. It was the dead of winter when Vespasian received the message. It was while his soldiers were camped beside a frozen lake in Gaul. Vespasian assembled his troops and he asked, not expecting any to respond, are any among you, are there any among you who cling to the faith of the Christians? If so, let him step forward. Without hesitation, 40 soldiers instantly stepped forward, two spaces, saluted, and stood at attention. Vespasian was somewhat stunned. He really had not expected any to step forward, and he said, Until sundown, I shall give you time to recant and deny your faith. At sundown, the soldiers were again assembled together, and Vespasian asked, Who still clings to the Christian faith, even if it means death? Again, 40 soldiers stepped forward and stood at attention. 
Vespasian, who had fought side by side with them, pleaded with them to deny their faith, but not one soldier would deny Christ. Vespasian did not want these men whom he loved and respected, who had fought side by side together, to die at the hands of their fellow wrestlers. So he had them stripped naked. And he reluctantly said, the decree of the emperor must be obeyed, so you shall stand out on the frozen lake, exposed to the elements until you freeze to death. Should you recant and deny Christ, the fire will remain burning on shore. And by returning to the shelter of the fire, you will be denouncing Christ, and you shall live. The 40 soldiers, stripped of their clothing, they fell into four columns of ten each and marched toward the center of the frozen lakes to their death. But as they marched under the ice, they chanted, Forty wrestlers, wrestling for thee, O Christ, to win for thee the victory, and from thee the victor's crown. All night long, Vespasian stood on that shoreline, stood by the campfire, and watched these forty brave wrestlers out on the ice as they slowly succumbed to the elements. As they grew weaker and weaker, their chanting grew fainter and fainter. Forty wrestlers, wrestling for thee, O Christ. To win for thee the victory, and from thee the victor's crown. As morning drew near, one wrestler, no longer able to stand the freezing cold, walked off the ice. Came to the edge of the fire, renouncing Christ. But Vespasian could hear faintly from the frozen lake, 39 wrestlers. Wrestling for thee, O Christ, to win for thee the victory, and from thee the victor's crown. Vespasian, standing by the fire all night, was confronted by the faith and the sacrifice of these Christ followers. And God touched his heart. Vespasian slowly removed his cloak, his helmet, and his armor. And he calmly walked upon the frozen lake to join his men. And as he walked, he chanted, Forty wrestlers, wrestling for thee, O Christ, to win for thee the victory, and from thee, the victor's crown. You know, the suffering and persecution we face as Christians in the West is currently light in comparison to those of our brothers and sisters around the world. We should be praying for them, encouraging them where we can. But likewise, we must prepare. We do not know when these things may change. So the question is, is when they do, will you be like Daniel and his friends who had set their heart so as to please the Lord in every respect, even if it meant suffering and persecution? Let's continually study the character and the love of the Father so that we desire nothing above our desire to please him, so that everything else pales in comparison. And so that the hope, the greatness, and the love of God would overshadow all fears of men we have in this life, and quite honestly, all fear we may have in this life, except the fear of God. Remembering, as Paul said at the end of Romans 8, for I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor death, nor any other created thing will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for the timely reminder this morning to not fear, but not simply the exhortation of the command to not fear, but the reason and the motivations and the explanation of why we have no reason to fear. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your greatness. We thank you for the hope of heaven that you have not left us wondering even about eternity. You have not let us wondering about whether you care for us. Father, help us to see each and every day and acknowledge with thankfulness each and every day your care for us. May it prepare us. May it make us steadfast. And Father, may this be for your glory, not so that we live peaceful lives, but Father, so that we might put to death the fear that's within us, any fear of man or suffering of man, so that we might glorify you by boldly proclaiming and revealing the truth of your kingdom to a dark world, a world that so desperately needs the light of your gospel. We pray these things in your name. Amen.